Man, it's such a joy to be here this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Jeffrey Davis, and I'm your pastor down the road in Marshall. And so it's really a privilege to be with you this morning to bring the Word of God. Uh, this is the church that raised me. And so I'm thrilled uh, to be here every time I get a chance. And then what uh, just an extra blessing uh, to be able to deliver God's word to the preacher who raised me. And so thankful that Dr. Johnson is here with us uh, this morning. Uh, That was a a pretty amazing surprise. I'm so thankful uh, for that opportunity. Uh, Well, I also am thankful to be here today because coming up in June, Jill and I, my wife, are celebrating 15 years of promises that we made to each other right here on this platform. And so that's okay. Well, thank you. Uh, I see some young faces in the room, but I also see plenty of people who 15 years is like, that's nothing (laughs) to you guys. So you should get the applause, I think, some of you. Uh, But we are really thankful we made those promises uh, to each other. How do you know when you're supposed to get married? If you've been a young adult or if you are a young adult, you've probably asked that question. How do you know when it's time? How do you know who you're supposed to marry? And overwhelmingly, the answer is you already know it. It's you know when you know. You know when you know. And then you spend the rest of your life figuring out that you don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> Marriage brings good, it brings bad. But the vows, the promises that we make, they sort of act like bumpers on a bowling lane that sort of keep you in the game, right? So as long as you stay within the vows, the promises that you make, that allows your marriage to flourish, whether good or bad comes. That's the whole idea behind what you say on your wedding day. Now, the Bible calls this kind of relationship a covenant. That's your Bible word for today, a covenant relationship. Because God has always pursued people to be in covenant relationship with himself. God designed and created you and I to be in relationship with him. Some of you may be coming to church today feeling far from God. And that's just the first thing that you need to hear maybe to stir your heart this morning, that God designed you, created you to be in relationship with him, to be in a covenant with him. Now, the difference is in marriage, if one partner breaks the vow, the other partner in our culture today tends to take that as an opportunity to go and find a better, more faithful covenant partner. It doesn't always work out that way, but God, on the other hand, is the person in the covenant relationship while where despite every single human being for all time always breaking covenant, becoming unfaithful partners to God, God always again and again chooses to pursue humanity, the unfaithful partner, and bring them into covenant relationship with him. God always makes away. Now, next week, the reason this is so important is because next week we're start, starting a series on both campuses uh, uh, studying the Ten Commandments. Now you think about Ten Commandments as law and rules and order, right, and, and morality, and all that is true. The Ten Commandments are sort of the human side of making vows in this covenant relationship with God. These are the things that we need to live into uh, in order to have this covenant relationship. But today I wanna zoom in on God's side, establishing the covenant relationship 
with people because we can't fully understand commandments until we comprehend covenant, right? The rules of God will probably always be frustrating until we learn how he relates. So open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 19. And let me just read the first two verses in Exodus 19 for you uh, as we begin to set up some context. If you're uh, there with me in your Bible, you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be on the screen for you so you can make sure and stay plugged into the scripture with us. Exodus 19, verses one and two. In the third month from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Now this is one of those places that I think if there was like a bucket list of Bible places where you would wanna go, you'd wanna go to Sinai. I mean, the things that happen at Mount Sinai, uh, just unbelievable experiences of God. And so what an awesome adventure that would be to go and camp at Mount Sinai. Only problem is we don't know where it is. Uh, We're not sure which mountain was actually Mount Sinai. Nobody's ever been able to decipher or discern that. I'm not sure we ever will be, but it is a real place. And uh, the people had actually come there, except that for the context, the most important thing isn't where they were. The most important thing here is where they had come from. You might remember the story of Exodus where God delivered Israel from years, generations of slavery to Egypt. And then at Sinai on this day, they are only seven weeks about removed from slavery in Egypt. And in a seven week period of time, they saw some incredible things happen. They saw the Red Sea parted, they walked across on dry land, and then they saw the Egyptian army drown. They had water provided for them miraculously in the desert. They had food raining down from heaven for their daily provisions. They had divine power provided to them to defeat the attacking Amalekite army. I mean, this is a pretty intense seven weeks, but still the Israelites were fish out of water. They had only known slavery in Egypt for so long This was foreign territory. Moses, however, was in familiar territory. You see, years before, when Moses was a younger man, he did some things in Egypt uh, as growing up an Israelite in Pharaoh's household that made him not really welcome in Egypt anymore. In fact, he murdered somebody, pretty bad, right? Uh, So he flees Egypt and resigns himself to a life as a shepherd in Midian, marries a Midianite woman, and every day takes a flock of sheep uh, into, uh, you know, obscurity. And he is just walking these sheep for years and years. The Bible says as years have gone by, many years have passed, and Moses is, is leading his sheep, and he leads them to the far side of the wilderness, up a mountain, and on that mountain, Earlier in Exodus, it's described that Moses sees a bush on fire, but it's not being burned up. And as he approaches the bush, a voice comes from it. 
and says, remove your sandals. This is holy ground. And Moses is thinking, oh my Lord, this is an amazing experience. This is a divine encounter. Who is this divinity? Who am I speaking to? And he longs to know. Eventually God introduces himself as Yahweh. I am who I am, right? And Moses is, is, is just flabbergasted about what's happening to him. But the voice of God speaks to Moses on the mountain. Exodus chapter three, verse 12, God commissions Moses. He says, I will certainly be with you and this will be the sign to you that I'm the one who sent you. Check this out. He says, when you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. So Moses is in a familiar place. Now, fast forward back to Exodus 19. Moses is not leading sheep anymore. Now he's fulfilling the commission of God. He's leading the people of God, the flock of God, to a mountain in the far side of the wilderness, a very familiar place where God shows up. The transcendent, sovereign, self-existent, self-sufficient God speaks from the mountain again to Moses, this time to make Moses the mediator by which God would establish personal relationship with this ungrateful, grumbling Israelite people so that once again, they might flourish. This is God's design. The Israelites had seen his power and they had seen his might, but it was through covenant relationship that God reveals his grace. See, God always builds covenant relationships on grace. And this is the Old Testament. I mean, normally we think the New Testament is where the grace is and the Old Testament is where the wrath is. And we go, well, that must be a different God, but it's not. It's the same God with the exact same characteristics, the same desires for people, always pursuing humanity, the unfaithful partner, inviting them into covenant relationship. And all of those covenants are based on his grace. It is the foundational characteristic of God relating to mankind. And in this case, he starts with his gracious deliverance of the Israelites. Look with me in verse three and four. It says, Moses went up the mountain of, to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, did you notice how God referred to his people? In verse three, he says to Moses, say to the house of Jacob and to the Israelites. And if you're new to the Bible, let me just help you. This is not two different people groups. This is the same people group, but he's referring to them as if he's referring to two different eras of their existence. See, Jacob, when he says house of Jacob, Jacob was a patriarch. He was the leader uh, of a family who, if you track with his story in the book of Genesis, has an encounter with God whose name is then changed from Jacob to Israel. Now, Jacob had a son named Joseph. Joseph endured all kinds of evil from his family and from others, which ultimately landed him in Egypt. 
This is sort of the people's entrance to Egypt was through Joseph. He endured evil to get there, but God turned it to good in all sorts of scenarios by elevating Joseph uh, to a position by which he could rescue his own family from famine by helping them resettle in Egypt. So house of Jacob, this is the people's humble beginnings in the land of Egypt. And then they already had a lot of kids. They started having more kids and those kids were having kids and they multiplied. They became not just a family, but a family of na- a nation of families called the Israelites. Now, after Joseph died, the people were not just, you know, neighborly residents to Egypt. Instead, Pharaoh made them into slaves. And then as time went on, their oppression got worse and worse. And then the Pharaoh came who was threatened by the number of Israelites that they were, that there were, and he treated them horribly. Now, It's at this point, right, where God calls the Israelites, having just delivered them. Now, what is God doing? House of Jacob, explain to the Israelites, God is fulfilling a centuries-old covenant promise that he had made to their ancestor Abraham. If you flip all the way back toward the beginning of your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, you find God's covenant that he establishes with this man, Abraham. Uh, Abraham, not really a special guy by any means, except that God chooses him to establish relationship. In Genesis chapter 12, verse one, he says, I will make you into a great nation. And then in verse three, he says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, certainly the Israelite people having come from Abraham and then on down the line to Jacob and then to Joseph and then beyond to the people we meet here today at Mount Sinai, these people had been treated with contempt. And so God had certainly cursed them, right? The the Egyptians for that. Why is this important? God's emphasizing his perpetual presence and his promise keeping. This is who God is. When the Israelites felt the most unseen, God saw them. When the Israelites felt the most unknown, God knew them. And when they were at their weakest, God delivered them. Look at the image in verse four. It's the image of an eagle. Uh, Now, you probably think of a bald eagle because that's just the symbol across our United States of America, right? But there were eight different uh, species of eagles. Uh, Some looked more like vultures. It didn't really matter which kind it was, but they all had similar purposes. This eagle was one that was a bird of prey, a bird of prey, meaning that they would swoop in to attack their enemies, much like God did with the 10 plagues against Pharaoh in Egypt to free his people. But not only are they a bird of prey, they're a bird that nurtures their young. And so an eagle mother would be one who is not content for her eagle babies to be in the nest forever, but has to bring them out of the nest, even as they're not quite ready to come out of the nest. They cling to their mother's wings and their mother lifts them out of the nest and begins to teach them to fly, 
helping them along the way as they begin to stumble, which is exactly what God is doing for the people here in these seven weeks from leaving Egypt to coming to Mount Sinai. And they have seen it. He's saying, recognize this. God has delivered the Israelites so that they can grow and flourish again. But the end goal of leaving the nest was not autonomy. The end goal of God bringing his people out of Egypt and teaching them to fly, the end goal was relationship with him. Because God always brings people salvation so that they're into a relationship with him. This is how Philip Ryken says it. He says, salvation is never an end in itself. There's always something greater, and that is God himself and our fellowship with him. So if you notice in all this how this is developing, that God's covenant promises are actually the overflow of a salvation that's already occurred, a deliverance that God has already made to come to pass, which is upside down from every other religion in the ancient world and in the modern world. Do you know what any other God from any other religion would have done if he had come to the Israelite people? He probably would have come to them while they were still in Egypt, while they were still slaves. And any other God would have come around and said, okay, Israelites as slaves in Egypt, I'm going to give you my list of rules. Here's my list. If you can accomplish all this and if you can do it perfectly, then maybe, just maybe, I'll think about setting you free. That's how every other religion works, but God flips that on its head. This is grace. God relates to people through grace. Earning is never a part of the equation of salvation. So then God changes from looking at what's happened in the past, now in this establishing of a covenant relationship with these people, and now he begins to look into the future. And so we look with God as he transitions to his gracious desires for the Israelites. Look with me in verse 5 and 6. God's still speaking to Moses to convey this message to the people. Verse 5 Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Now, you may have noticed The biggest word in these two verses, verse five and six, the biggest word in these two verses is actually one of the words with the fewest letters. Have you ever heard of a big if? You ever made a promise to someone and they go, if if you'll do this, then I'll do it. And you go, that's a big if, right? This is a conditional covenant. This covenant God makes with the people, this is how the Old Testament covenants tended to work. There were covenants of blessing and curse. They were built on conditions. Now, Didn't we just say that God is a God of grace and he always builds covenant relationships on grace? So now that we know this is a conditional covenant, doesn't that sort of cancel that out? Doesn't that make this like a works-based covenant? Well, think of it this way. Uh, When I was growing up, 
Um, my brother and I uh, had have very loving parents who took care of us. They provided for our every need. They nurtured us. They gave us shelter. They gave us food. Uh, in fact, they gave us more than we needed a lot. And that is just a real, real blessing. Uh, I didn't choose to be in that family and I could not have done anything to earn what they provided for me. But there came a point where I had to put in some effort Right? You can't just grow up in a house in East Texas with loving parents and just sit around and play video games all day. Like that just is not how it works, okay? I had to put in some effort. So what my mom did was went on Excel and made herself a little spreadsheet chart of chores, okay? And she posted this chore chart on the refrigerator and she gave it a title. The title was Chart of Horrors. <laughs> which for two young boys was totally apropos. It was perfect, right? Uh, and it's just ingrained in my memory forever. The chart of horrors. And every Saturday morning, we woke up to the chart of horrors and we knew that we had to finish our chores before we could do anything else, anything fun, anything with our friends, go out and play, etc. Those chores had to be done. Now I'm a young boy, right? Am I gonna always get my chores done? No. When I do get them done, am I gonna do them well? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> you ever asked a young boy to clean a toilet? <laughs> it's not going to go well. But even when I didn't do it or didn't do it well, I never questioned my place in my family. I never questioned whether or not my parents were going to continue to provide for me. Were there consequences? Sure, yeah. But I never questioned my place. This is like Dallas Willard, a philosopher, said that grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. So a works-based covenant would have required God to abandon the Israelites had they not perfectly kept the covenant commands. Now, certainly God does desire obedience, but God in his grace always keeps covenant even when humans cannot. That's the definition of grace, is it not? That God treats us better than we deserve? So look at verse five and six again. You see three particular ways, things that God says that he desires for his Israelite people in a covenant relationship that takes grace to a whole new level, okay? First, he says that they will be his own possession. Now, nobody wants to be in a relationship today that, uh, where possessiveness is like one of the defining characteristics. Like that just doesn't work in our world today, possessiveness, because that's the first thing you think of. You think of someone who's controlling. Uh, you think of someone who might even be abusive. Well, can I just tell you that's not what God means here? This is something totally different. In fact, this phrase, my own possession, uh, is not a, a phrase where he's invoking his authority or his power or his ownership as creator, although it says here that he actually has the right to do that. He's not doing that. When he says my own possession, it's, it's a Hebrew idiom uh, that sort of means a phrase that has a meaning beyond just the words. Like if I say spill the beans, I don't mean actually spill the beans, right? So he says a people of my own possession, he's saying you are my most prized possession of everything on the earth. You're the best. You're worth the most to me. Of all creation, of everything that I own and am over, you are the crown jewel, O Israelite people. 
Can you imagine? The majestic mountain of Sinai, other mountains in the distance, other mountains of the world. Can you imagine the the most beautiful and rare animals and plants? Can you imagine the most expensive minerals and metals? All of those things, everything that we would say is the most and the best and worth absolutely more than anything else in the world pale in comparison to what God thinks about his covenant people. This is the grace of God. Even compared to humanity, this is odd because at the time, this people were slaves. I mean, really, that was sort of their national identity. They had been freed from slavery, but that's what they knew. That's who they believed they were. And so God is saying, you're not that anymore. You're not just a tiny, inconsequential people. The Israelites had nothing to offer God. They had nothing to offer anyone else either, for that matter. Nothing in them and nothing about them should have moved God to ascribe value to them. Look at how Moses describes this scenario 40 years after this moment in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 says, The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. This is the grace of God. Their value had nothing to do with who they were and everything to do with who God is is. So, in the context of a covenant relationship with God, true human value can be realized. In fact, that's the only place it can be realized. We live in a world today where people want to decide who is worth what. Uh, And if not that, they tell you, you can decide what you're worth. Can I just tell you that that is going to be so small in comparison to the worth that God, the sovereign, self-sufficient, self-existent, transcendent God wants to ascribe to you in a covenant relationship. And you cannot experience or realize true human value until you enter into that covenant relationship with God. This is who he is. This is incredible grace. Now next he says that these people will be his kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. And how strange this phrase would have sounded to them. I think it probably sounds strange to us too if we just step out of church world and we stop using churchy language for a second. 
We would go, kingdom of priests. Yeah, that sounds odd. Well, this is a people who are seven weeks removed from slavery in Egypt, having fled Pharaoh through dry ground past the Red Sea that was parted. I mean, this is their story, but you gotta know that kingdom was not anything that was on their radar. Beyond that, priesthood wasn't on their radar. Priesthood hadn't been established yet. They didn't know really even what that was at this point. So what does it mean that God would say he desires them to be his kingdom of priests? Well, uh, God was inviting this nation into a relationship, a covenant relationship where he would be their God and they would be his priests. And I think God expressed this desire Uh, before the priesthood was established so that every Israelite at Mount Sinai would feel the personal responsibility to the work of God in the world. Yes, they are a nation, but they're a nation made up of individuals. And I believe that God wanted both Israel as a nation and each individual Israelite to know what it meant and to feel the responsibility of serving him as a priest would, uh, of having and enjoying access to him as a priest would, and being full participants in making his kingdom a reality on earth. This is what God does in covenant relationship. Now, you would think that, as they might have, that Priests are just the professionals. You come to church probably expecting someone akin to a priest to do something for you, like deliver God's word to you or pray for you or teach you or whatever it might be. But what God is saying in covenant relationship is that each person, not just the whole of us, but every one of us are intended to serve him, are intended to enjoy access to him personally and to be full participants in making his kingdom a reality on earth. And lastly, he says that they will be his holy nation. His holy nation. God's covenant plan was to distinguish the Israelites from every other nation for his special purpose. Or as one author put it, that he would set them apart, not only from the nations, but for the nations. You see, remember God's promise to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, hundreds of years before, he said that Abraham's family, which ultimately became the Israelites, would be a people who all the peoples on the earth would be blessed through them. God continues to fulfill covenant. And just as God made Moses the mediator on Mount Sinai to extend and mediate his grace to the Israelites, God desired for the Israelites in this covenant relationship to mediate his grace to the world. That was his plan. Covenant brings grace into focus. God remembered his promise. God rescued and redeemed his people. Then he called for a response of obedience. What does this have to do with us? It's not just a history lecture. (laughs) I told you we would zoom in on God at Mount Sinai. 
Now I want to just zoom out and look at the story of God over all time and make one application to your life that you cannot miss today. God graciously invites people into covenant. But if we keep reading in Exodus 19, and then as we'll start next week, looking at the Ten Commandments, what you will quickly realize is that no Israelite was able to fully meet the demands of this covenant. Not even Moses. And even if you just look at the Ten Commandments, if you thought honestly about your own life, you probably couldn't get past number one before you realized, I don't meet the demands of this covenant relationship. And that makes you wonder, how can I be in relationship to God? Well, if we are the unfaithful partner, God continues to pursue us, right? God always makes a way. In fact, hundreds of years after Sinai, a prophet would be raised up by the name of Jeremiah. God would speak to Jeremiah words of a new covenant, a covenant that would continue to build on the covenants that he's already established with his people. But this covenant, this new one, would not be a covenant where God, with his finger, wrote on tablets of stone. Instead, it would be a covenant where God writes on the hearts of mankind in order for them to be restored into relationship with him. The story moves on. Hundreds of years later, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews, after even Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended to heaven and the church has been born, Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 15 says that Jesus Christ is the mediator of this new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We could not keep it, but Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law. And because he did, he became an acceptable sacrifice that he could extend his life, that he could give up his life for us, that he would die the death we deserved as lawbreakers in order to pay our penalty. This is the grace of God. We could not keep this covenant. We could not be in this relationship, but he made a way. Hebrews goes on to say that there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so with Easter and Good Friday in our recent memory, can I just bring that back to your attention? When Jesus gave his life on the cross, he gave it for you so that you could have forgiveness of sin, so that you could enter into a covenant relationship with God. Jesus is our only hope for salvation. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. He died the death that we deserved. And like the Israelites who were rescued from Egypt, by the way, you can't do anything to earn it. That grace that Jesus offers, you can't earn it. You must, however, receive it by faith. And when you do, 
you'll not only be saved from sin and death. I mean, that's the hope. That's the gospel, right? To be saved from sin and death, but that's not the end of the story of covenant relationship with God. You won't only be saved from sin and death, you'll also begin to flourish again. You'll realize your true value as a human. Value ascribed by God. You'll serve God with joy. You'll enjoy access, free access to the holy God of all creation. You will be a full participant in making his kingdom a reality here on earth. And he will set you apart, distinguishing you from others, not so that you'll just be different, but so that he can extend his grace to the world through you who have already experienced his grace. This is the good news of Jesus and the grace of God that fills every page of this book. And he invites you into a relationship with him. He's a relatable God. He knows you and he wants you to know him for who he truly is. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good. Your grace is sufficient for us. I pray that we would see you for who you truly are, a God who loves us and wants a relationship with us. For anyone today who is yet to come into a relationship with you through faith in Jesus, I pray today would be the day. And that God, you would make us a people who understand truly our value that you've given us, who serve you, who, who participate in bringing your kingdom to bear on this earth. That God, we would be a people who extend your grace to others. Thank you for grace. We're nothing without it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.